Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. We have a remarkable story on the show this week. It's remarkable on a lot of levels. The details of the story are riveting. But the takeaway is is something that's been it's really has stuck with me and it's about the concept of dying before you die which is not morbid it's about letting go of attachments letting go of status money possessions achievements whatever we will when we die be forced to let go of all of that but can you do that before you die at least in uh, in some way and you're going to hear about somebody who who endeavored to do just that. He's a, a famous, super famous monk and meditation teacher in the Tibetan uh, school of Buddhism. He's he's what's been called a prince of the Dharma. In other words, he's uh, he was born into a famous school of uh, a famous family of meditation teachers. He's believed to be the reincarnation of one, maybe two famous meditation masters uh, of yore, um, and so has spent his life studying meditation, teaching meditation, but also all of the practical stuff has been taken care of. He's never made a cup of tea for himself. He's never ordered a train ticket. And one day, he up and disappeared from his monastery where he lived in Nepal. Disappeared. Ghosted. Uh, and he went off on what's called a wandering retreat. This is something that meditation masters have been doing for centuries, where instead of just going to a monastery and sitting in retreat, you actually go off and wander through the streets and the forests and do your retreat in that fashion. And so this so-called prince of the Dharma went and lived on the streets where he had to beg for food. He lived in caves. Uh, and at one point, he almost died. And I mean, I'm not using that. Uh, according to his uh, telling of the story, this is not just kind of he, he got super sick. I mean, he really almost died. And he has an amazing account of a near-death experience where he is, after having done decades of really intensive meditation, awake and aware as his body is falling apart. So that's fascinating, too. This is also, though, the story of the Western writer who collaborated with this monk to tell the story. The writer's name is Helen Tworkov, and she's our guest this week. And she and the aforementioned monk, whose name is uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, have written a book about this. It's called In Love with the World. It's just out. So we're going to talk about what, what does that mean, In Love with the World? And what did she, Helen, learn in the process of this? Because she has a longstanding relationship with Mingyur Rinpoche. She's a student of his, and she's a, a writer herself. Uh, so what did she learn in in all this, and what can we learn from it? Uh, that's all coming up. First, a, a couple of items of business. One is we have two new meditations up in the 10% Happier app, the newly redesigned, revamped uh, 10% Happier app, which has a whole new look to it. So go in, if you're an app subscriber, go in and update it. You'll see we've got a whole snazzy new look. Also, very interested to hear what you think of that. So hit me on Twitter or go to, go tell your coach uh, on the app what you think, because we really want to know. Uh, the two new meditations, uh, one is from Joseph Goldstein. It's called Am to Is. And then another one called Understanding Stress, 
by Anushka Fander, uh, Fernandopoli. Uh, the other item of business is that my colleague, Dr. Jen Ashton, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, she's just written a book called Life After Suicide about what she and her family went through after her husband, or actually they'd been divorced for two weeks, so her recent, recently ex-husband uh, uh, died by suicide. And she started a podcast which you should go check out. It's called Life After Suicide. You can go and subscribe right now. And uh, the second episode has just gone up, and it is an interview with her daughter, Chloe, uh, and it is really um, quite a wrenching discussion about how Chloe, who's a college student, reacted to the loss of her father and how she's been dealing with grief. Okay, Helen Torkov, our guest this week. She is the founding editor of a magazine called Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, which is the first and only independent Buddhist magazine. She also, before her most recent book, she wrote a book called Zen in America, Profiles of Five Teachers. Uh, so now she's got this new book called In Love with the World. Uh, Helen is has been a longtime uh, meditation practitioner and writer. She has also been a longtime student of this particular teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche. Um, after he got back from his four-and-a-half-year wandering retreat, he uh, reached out to Helen and asked her to work with him on writing this book. He initially, as she tells the story, he initially wanted to write pretty much all about his near-death experience and, and talk about what he saw there uh, and to break it all down. She said, sure, we can write about that. But um, I think what's equally, if not more interesting, is why anyone would walk away from basically having it all. Uh, you know, being such a highly esteemed uh, meditation teacher in a world where, um, you know, he has all these attendants taking care of him and all these students who adore him. And he went out and lived on the streets. And of course, this move that he made of giving everything up is what she means by dying before you die, you know, letting go of everything and sort of living from that spot. And we we talk about how in this episode, Helen and I talk about how we, the rest of us, can incorporate this wisdom, this perspective, without living on the streets or living in a cave. We talk about the difference between letting go and giving up. That's a really fundamental thing to understand. We talk about, this is going to sound a little ooey-gooey, but we talk about how when you strip away all of your attachments, all that is left is love. Okay. I know that sounds a little sappy, but I have to say that when I have this incipient sense based on my own beginning or beginner experiences on long retreats, that that may be true. So we talk about that, and, and of course that, that sentiment that all that's left after you strip away your attachments is love, that of course is what's behind the title of the book, In Love with the World. We also talk about Helen's uh, career, both from a meditative standpoint and, and from a writing standpoint, what she's learned from having uh, meditated for all of these years and what she's learned from working one-on-one -on -one with many amazing teachers. Uh, and how, you know what, what does that say about the rest of us? Do we need a teacher? Uh, what, we, what she's learned from covering America's Dharma scene. Uh, we talk about a specific kind of meditation uh, that's known as nature of mind meditation, which I do a little bit and find fascinating. She also holds forth about all of the scandals, the Me Too scandals that have rolled through 
the meditation and Buddhist Buddhist world in in the last uh, eighteen months or so. And she has a very interesting perspective. Talks uh, she talks a lot about the difference between having enlightenment experiences and being full stop enlightened, and that's a really key distinction. We also talk about how she got in, into the meditation game in the first place and uh, how she has learned the hard way that Buddhism is not going to solve all of your problems. And yet, she says, it still offers something immeasurably valuable. So here we go. Here's Helen Tworkov. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thanks for nice coming to see in. You. Thank you. Um, well, how did you get into meditation in the first place? <laughs> I don't know why I asked that question as if I was making it up on the spot. I always ask that question first. Um but anyway, uh, it's not a it's not in one line answer. And it took a long time. I spent a lot of time in Asia when I was very young uh, and I was exposed. To, Why? Why were you in Asia? Because I was a very rebellious kid of the 60s. And rather than go to sit at the icons of European heritage, I took off for the East uh, and I, I was a hippie. And I traveled, I was in Japan for six months and read D.T. Suzuki and understood absolutely nothing. He wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. No, that's the other Suzuki. That's Shunryo Suzuki. Okay. This is D.T. Suzuki, who was very, very influential. He was, he influenced uh, the beat poets with, uh, very influential with Allen Ginsberg and, and Jack Kerouac and Gary Snyder and people like that. What did he write that, that you read? He wrote, wrote dozens of books, and I can't remember the titles. I honestly couldn't understand a thing. They were much too intellectual and abstract for me. And his part of what he was doing at that time was to try to create a kind of philosophy devoid of practice. He thought practice might frighten Westerners away, which it might have. Uh, so there was nothing about actually how to sit. Uh, it was very philosophical. Uh, but I couldn't get into it. How old were you at this time? 22. So you had graduated from college? Yeah. And where did you grow up? Uh, on East 23rd Street. Oh, right here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So were your folks uh, annoyed that you decided to go to uh, Asia instead of, I don't know, studying the, the great... They were a little bit perplexed, I think. I mean, they they, they were... Yeah, I think that I think they were a little perplexed, but they were supportive of my traveling. Maybe not. I stayed away a little longer than I intended. Stayed away for almost two years. I told them I'd be back in six months. Uh, but I kept in touch with them. Um, so that was my first experience of Buddhism, of the East. Uh, then I went to Nepal and I worked in Tibetan refugee camps in 1966. And that was very transformative for me. But I was afraid to practice. I, I was afraid of gurus. Uh, I, there, were, there were aspects of Buddhism as, as far as I knew it. There's very little to read in those days. Uh, so it took me another 10 years of slowly making my way towards practice. And I didn't start practicing till around 75, 76. Why were you afraid of gurus? I think I was just afraid of the, of the whole concept of an authority in a so-called religion. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know what it meant. I'm not sure I do today, but I, it, it still has a, uh, you know, it, it, I think I had so many misunderstandings about it, which I think people do today as well. Um, I, I really misread it a lot. But do, do you have a guru now? I do. Minjur Rinpoche is my teacher. Sure. Okay. Well, do you pronounce it Minjur Rinpoche? Yeah. Okay, so I've been mispronouncing it this whole time. What do you say? I thought it was Mingyur Rinpoche. Mingyur. 
Minger, M-I-N-G-Y, Minger Rinpoche. Okay. Yeah. Isn't he? He's he's even younger than me, right? He's a he's yeah, he's super young, right? I've met him. But well, I, he's uh, let's see. He must be about forty-two or yeah. forty-three by yeah. now. I'm forty-seven, so okay. he's definitely younger than me. He's a lot younger than I am. And I'm is a that baby teacher. is that is that strange to you to have a? Because what we think of the guru as being some, you know, eminence grise. At some point, I was I had started off in Tibetan Buddhism, and then I started studying Zen. And at some point, my Zen teacher died, and I had several years without any teacher. And uh, when I began looking around, that was an issue for me. Uh, age, I thought, well, this is going to be strange. I mean, why? Maybe I don't need it. I actually had the idea that maybe I didn't need a teacher at that point in my life. That turned out to be a mis- big mis- mistake. On my part, it took me a couple of years to realize that my practice was not uh, where I wanted it to be, and I, I needed help. I needed guidance, and so I started looking for a teacher. And um, I did a retreat with Mindy Rinpoche that was very important to me, and it was basically everything that I was looking for. Uh, he he during it was a five day retreat at Gempo Abbey in uh, Cape Breton, and it was teachings on what we call the uh, the nature of mind. It was sort of asking again and again, where is your mind, where is your mind? And I had been gotten very lost in my Zen sitting practice. So this was a specificity and a precision to his questions that was very important to me. We're, we're way off the rails now in terms of your personal chronology, but we've, we're here, so okay. let's just stay here. I'm assuming but the question for you, I'm assuming that all this gets edited. Oh, no, we don't edit anything. It's beautifully messy. <laughs> not, so. not this messy, Dan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why not? Our listeners love it. No. I hope I'm, I'm, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm speaking for our listeners in a way I shouldn't. But uh, they have no choice because this is the way we do it. Um, the But stay stay on the nature of mind for a second because we glossed over that. What, is, what does that mean? Where is your mind? What is, what's that all about? Now I gotta, you know, I wish I had stayed way off the rails. <laughs> well, when we when we practice and when we sit in meditation, we're basically learning something about our minds, trying to familiarize ourselves with our minds, and we don't know a lot about it. The first teacher I ever had, the first Tibetan teacher I ever had, I went in to have a, a one-on-one interview with him, and he asked me, "What color is your mind?" And I was completely dumbfounded. I just sat there completely astonished. I had no idea what to say to say anything. Nobody, I'd never even imagined being asked that question. It never occurred to me that that question existed in the world as a question. <laughs> and what, what color is your mind and how big is your mind and where does it come from and where does it go? And so those are kinds of questions. And then Minter and Bache basically was a, uh, something, an echo of that quite a few years later. Uh, but it was the same idea of of asking you to look into your mind and see what you know about it, which is pretty much nothing. Right. I mean, I, my understanding of these practices, and it's been filtered to me through Joseph Goldstein, who uh, the great meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein, who went off and studied with Tibetan masters, but he he actually comes from a different lineage. Uh, meaning he's a, he's in a different school of practice, Theravada, which is kind of old school, which predates the Tibetan practice. And he will sometimes ask you to ask a question, which is, say you're hearing noises, you ask yourself, what is hearing? 
What is hearing these noises? Who is hearing these noises? And in the looking, you don't find, but the not finding is in some way healing. Is that, is that? That's the same idea. It's the same idea. Okay. And getting more and more familiar with what we conventionally call the mind is a, a, a very surface, external, um, very limited, very constricted version of what there is to know. And becoming more and more familiar with that, how to unearth what's underneath that muttering that goes on all the time. Did you get an answer? <laughs> I'm look, I'm still looking. <laughs> <laughs> so 1975 you actually start practicing. What why what what brings you to the cushion at this point as after all these years of kind of flirting with it? A lot of emotional pain, personal pain. What was and, going on? You don't have to answer that question. Good. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of my my marriage was breaking up and other as emotional difficulties. And uh, I couldn't. Uh, my I was my mind was driving me crazy. It's very simple. I, I, was, I was thinking very obsessively about things that were very unpleasant and very difficult, and and not working with them in any kind of construction constructive way, and not dissolving them in any way, and just experience the, myself as like banging into a wall again and again and again. I have to do something. I have to do something. Why not just see a shrink like a, a, all good New Yorkers? <laughs> I think I, I already I had already had seen a shrink. <laughs> that was you know I had already done that <laughs> um, with varying degrees of success or, or not. Um, and you know it was 1975. I was in New York. I, I had I had been living in Canada. I moved back to New York, and everybody seemed to be searching for some spiritual uh, way. And uh, the Vietnam War has was barely uh, over, uh, and the culture was still in a lot of turmoil. And uh, so there was certainly an interest in exploring things that were outside the mainstream at that point, still a mistrust of, of what was going on in the mainstream, whether it was therapy or, or other more conventional religious forms. And I had been in Asia for a couple of years before that, and I had gone back to Asia. So I had some affinity uh, for Buddhism without being able to really study it. What did, when you finally started actually practicing, it, was it, it, I'm gathering from the shards of narrative that we've been able to collect thus far that it was in the Zen tradition? No, first it was the Tibetan tradition. First was Tibetan, yeah. and then Zen, and then yeah. back to Tibetan. Yeah, Okay. yeah. So tell me what was that like? Well, my teacher at that time was a very elderly gentleman named Duja Rinpoche, and... It was quite uh, traditional from one point of view. You know, any any Westerner walking into a Tibetan shrine room in 75 or in many cases today might think that this looks just like it does in old Tibet. You know, it's just <laughs> – but, of course, if if any Tibetan walking in would think it's radically different. So it depends on your view there. But uh, in many ways, it was quite traditional. Um the practices were traditional, the ritual, there was a lot of uh, chanting, <clears throat> a lot of recitation of liturgy, and he was very extraordinary. But unlike a teacher like Trumper Rinpoche, he, it was not his karma, if you will, to 
to put a bridge down for Westerners like myself. Uh, So he remained very um, inspiring, but unreachable for me personally. That's not true for many people, but that was – for me, that was true. Which is, you referenced Trungpa Rinpoche, a controversial uh, Tibetan teacher who came to the West, wore suit and tie, took off his robes, and became quite accessible, depending on who you ask, for better or worse, um, to uh, to Westerners. Just wanted to get that out there for folks. So well, it was his books that first actually uh, was reading his books in nineteen. 19- can't remember when seventy two seventy three. I was still living. Books. Yeah, I was still living in Canada, but those were the first books because I had started reading anything I could about Buddhism. Uh, but in those days, late sixties, there were about five books. It was just incredibly. I mean, you go to a bookstore now, it just blows my mind how many books there are about Buddhism in the last what, fifty years. We're talking about, but his books in the early seventies were, were my introduction to the possibility that Buddhism was for Westerners. I hadn't quite believed that prior to that. Buddhism, I had experienced it in Asia, and it uh, it was still something that seemed to me so integral to Asia that I couldn't actually imagine bringing it out of Asia. And his books, which were so much written for Westerners and to Westerners, and addressing our concerns in such a forthright way, was my first experience of thinking that maybe this was a possible path for a Westerner. Why didn't you go study with him? I think by that time, he already had like a big kind of scene around him that felt quite impenetrable to me. I was like, I would always be an outsider. Um, and it was all, it already felt like it had formed and it had some sort of solidity. And he was in Colorado mostly and I was in New York and it just didn't, I didn't have, actually, I did go to see him a couple of times in the seventies and I wasn't particularly attracted to changing my life and studying with him. What, you say you got into practice finally because of emotional pain. Did it help? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, in the long run, I think it did. But in the short run, I'm, I can't remember. I honestly can't remember. <laughs> what it, you know, I, think, I think that having some alternative, uh, knowing, that there was, knowing, knowing that there were alternatives – to what I was doing with my mind was critical and was very encouraging and gave me, gave me a lot of hope and optimism. That doesn't mean that I could get up every day and, and work with that mind. But just to have something as an alternative to what I had known about, uh, I think was very critical. Was it that you know, all of a sudden, instead of just drowning in and indulging your emotions all the time, you could see them at arm's length? I'm projecting here because that's what's been useful for me. I think taking responsibility for the kind of emotional anxiety that I was experiencing was critical, that I, that I, I couldn't continue to blame others, although I did a good job of that anyway. I mean, that, that, took, that took quite a few years. It's still happening. I'm still working on it. But there's some level on which knowing that, uh, that, that, that I am creating my own suffering and that I have the capacity to liberate myself from that same suffering. That's a very critical piece of information. And even if you can't import it into your marrow every day and live with it and, and, and 
keep using it from the inside out. I still think it's an important piece of information. Yes. I mean, you're making me think about something that I've I've been thinking about quite a bit recently that it's often said, and I found this underwhelming when I first heard it, that one of the original, if not the original translation of the ancient Indian Pali word for mindfulness is remembering or recollecting. I read that the other day. And and I remember thinking, okay, okay. Uh, but now I, we are so wired for denial, for forgetting. Uh, we don't want to look at, you know, hard, small T truths like impermanence. Um, and so much of the practice for me now is just like remembering to wake up. Yeah. I completely agree with. That. I have this exact same, uh, exactly the same idea. That often I have thought that the key to Buddhist practice is remembering, just remembering, just remembering. Yeah. So it it helped in some way, but it wasn't. I would imagine uh, it didn't like solve all of your problems. No, no. And it took me a long time to understand that Buddhism wasn't going to solve all of my problems ever. That that was some fantasy I had, some wish-fulfilling ideal I had. Problems were going to keep coming. Circumstances were going to keep arising. You went on to do a thing uh, to 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 make a move that's had uh, quite a legacy, which is you you started Tricycle Magazine. When when and why? I started Tricycle in 1991. The years before that, from around the mid 80s around the, for several years, there was a series of scandals in the Buddhist community, not, not like what's going on right now, but there were individual scandals in, in all the different communities, in Zen, in Tibetan Buddhism, in uh, Vipassana communities. And at that time, there were several of us that were working on um, community newspapers. Trumpa uh, Rinpoche's uh, paper it was then called the Vajradhatu Sun, um, uh, Windbell in San Francisco, 10 Directions in, in Los Angeles. These were all community newspapers. Uh, and there was a group of us who would write for those papers, but of course we were not allowed to talk about these scandals. And all these guys that were being uh, under the gun were all friends of each other's and nobody could write about anybody else's teacher. And it was a very um, censored situation. Meanwhile, we were, it's all we talked about. We were all talking about these various situations in these different communities. And so the need for some kind of an independent magazine became somewhat pressing. We had been talking about it, but it was sort of like, wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't it be fun to have a, a, a non-sectarian Buddhist magazine? And suddenly it became not fun. It became like, we really need this. And the mainstream press started to pick up on some of these stories. And so the mainstream press could cover it, but we couldn't cover it. And we wanted to put it into a larger and sympathetic context. Yeah, things happen, and they're not great. And uh, but we wanted to own it and and make it part of our own lives and our own community. And so um, at that time, there was no other Buddhist. In fact, I don't think historically there had ever been an independent Buddhist magazine. They were all coming out of communities, or they were supported by various sects or lineages and so forth. So this was a very radical departure from anything that had uh, happened previously, and it really freed us up. We could do anything. Um, and we had people working on all, from all different traditions, and it was one of the things that happened during that period of these different uh, problems in the communities. It was acted like a great leveler, because prior to that, all these communities had a kind of sense of being better than, you know, Zen was 
always, you know, the most enigmatic, the most mysterious, and and the, the coolest. <laughs> and Tibetan Buddhism was, you know, they took it as as uh, literal that they were the, the supreme teachings. And the Vipassana community has always thought, you know, they were the closest to the bones of the Buddha, so they were the real Buddhism. And there's all this kind of sense of of kind of one-upmanship between the the different communities and. And these scandals kind of was a great leveler. Like all of a sudden, we kind of accepted that we didn't know what the heck was going on. We didn't know how to bring these teachings into the West. We didn't know what it meant to have a teacher and that we were all in the same boat. And that allowed us to create a common language and a common, uh, a common ethos for one magazine, what one the, independent. What were the scandals you were referring to, sex scandals? Financial uh, scandals? Uh, well, there was a scandal with um, at the Zen Center of San Francisco. That was a sex scandal. Uh, there was a scandal with my own teacher, my Zumi Roshi. That was sex and alcohol. There was a scandal with uh, the, a Vipassana teacher. That was sex. Uh, and in uh, Trimparumba community, there was a scandal with his Vajra regent who had been diagnosed with AIDS and had been having unprotected sex. How do you compute these purportedly great masters training their minds for greater self-awareness and compassion, doing things that are less than wholesome? I can't. It doesn't compute. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. I just don't. Um, I think one of I, we're still working on it. I mean, I'm thinking about it a lot these days. Because we have a whole new set of scandals, as you know. What are you referencing when you talk about these scandals today? Today? Yeah. Well, we've had three major uh, problems within Tibetan communities recently. Uh, um, uh, the Sakyang and the Shambhala community. Former guest on this podcast, who was <laughs> Trungpa, the aforementioned Trungpa Rinpoche's, who was controversial in and of himself, uh, drank himself to death, uh, had relationships with his students and sibling, uh, spouses of students, and uh, so there's that. And then his son, who is actually, you know, he sat in the chair you're sitting in right now and presented as quite straight-laced, uh, kind of maybe, maybe I thought, of a bit of a reaction to his dad. And then it came out that there were allegations that he had done, you know, there was some untoward behavior with women. Um, I don't know if there's drinking involved. I didn't look at it closely. I, I, the, the rumor is that there is. I, that's, I only know it from some quite a bit of remove. I'm not mm-hmm. a member of that community. Uh, then there's a, a Sogul Rinpoche. That was mostly sex. Uh, a Vajrayana teacher. And then uh, Lama Norla in upstate New York. That was also sex. So, you know, right now there's a kind of um, another... But, I don't think it's it's gotten it hasn't it hasn't gotten easier for me to explain it except that I do I do feel that we have made adjustments I think at least I have and I think many people in what our ideas of enlightenment are now, we used to see it as something static you know like like a something that like a, some kind of a alchemical transformation in the mind or the brain or some part of some part of your being that therefore could not be moved became immutable, and even though the teachings themselves keep reminding us that everything is changeable, everything is transitory, everything is in transition. We continue to have this idea that enlightenment was some kind of a rock. That, 
I think we can put aside. How it manifests and what it means, can we hold these two things together? Is it legitimate to hold them together? I don't know. I really don't know. So maybe they have enlightenment experiences, but that doesn't preclude them from doing something bad. Well, we know that enlightenment experiences are not enlightenment. And I think that's, a, that's one thing we can, we can, many of us can agree on at this point, that glimpses of emptiness, glimpses of enlightenment, uh, experiences of, of, uh, of non-duality, of no self, that is not an enlightened mind. That, that there's a kind of a steadiness that has to be acquired. And I think at the end of the day, very few people get there, or at least among people that we know or have known or know of. Maybe a few, but not so many. Yeah, it's it. I I continue to find it mystifying. I've had mystifying. folks. I've had we've had podcast guests who've who've really looked at this. And if I'm, I don't know if I can um, remember it uh, uh, accurately, but. I think one of the explanations I've heard is that, look, delusion runs deep. Uh, desire runs deep. These patterns um, uh, run very, very deep. And so uh, you can be you can have done a lot of work and really change the structures of your brain and your mind. And in the right conditions, um, you may act in ways that uh, that are harmful. That explanation seems I mean, if not fully satisfying in the in the neighborhood. Well, it's it gets complicated because, of course, a lot of what looks like unenlightened behavior to one person will then look like enlightened behavior to somebody else. So, if you keep the focus on behavior, then you run into a lot of issues around conventional judgments and assessments, and that gets complicated also. So, uh, you know, it it it, <laughs> it doesn't help. So. Uh, Tricycle started in 1991, and the would you, the the mission was to to you know, look. The mission was so simple in those days. <laughs> I mean, that now it seems so complicated. Like, what is the magazine doing today? But in those days, it was to disseminate Dharma, and it still is. It's the same mission, even though it has many different platforms right now. Because James Shaheen, who's running Tricycle, has developed big digital platform and learning platform and movie festivals, all kinds of things at Tricycle. The mission is the same, but of course the whole landscape has gotten a lot more complicated. So you, are you a writer by training and uh, is that what No, my background was in anthropology. Okay. But I had some editing experience before and I wrote a book about Zen before I started Tricycle. What was that book? Zen in America. It's a profile of teachers, of American teachers. So a lot of it that had to do it, – it wasn't dissimilar to things that I did with the magazine, but it had to do with a, with a cultural meeting point between uh, Japanese-trained American teachers and Western – American, specifically American culture. Let's, uh, let's talk about your new book. Good. We got to hear of Minjur Rinpoche's version, um, but you actually – and, and we talked about this a little bit before we started rolling here, we're able to kind of draw out of him probably more than than he told us. So, and and it's possible, by the way, that many people listening to this haven't yet heard the Minger interview. So let's just start from the beginning. How did how did you get uh, hooked, uh, hooked up with him to write this book? Okay. I started studying with him in around uh, 2005. 
And then a couple of years later, he asked me to work on a chapbook for his own students. Uh, a what book? A chapbook, a kind of a chapbook, a kind of study book. Okay. Uh, on the foundational practices of Tibetan Buddhism. And that turned into a 350-page book on the foundational practices of Tibetan Buddhism that was published by Shambhala. So that was the first book we did. What was that called? Uh, Turning Confusion into Clarity. Okay. And then uh, he, well, that, uh, yeah, when that book actually came out, he was on retreat. And he came out of retreat. He announced in 2010 that he'd be going on a three-year retreat or a long retreat. He didn't say how long. He would, that wasn't so surprising because in his Kamakaku tradition, that's quite common. You go for long retreats, three years, three months, three days is a kind of classic number. But basically, that's just a stand-in for long solo <laughs> retreat. Okay. And um, <clears throat> he began making extensive preparations to be away for a long time, making curriculums for the little monks, for the big monks, uh, <clears throat> tapes for the Western students. There's one thing about this retreat that we didn't know about, which is where was he going to do this retreat? And there were a lot of rumors about what monastery he might go into. Would he go into one of his own monasteries, his teacher's monastery? What kind of hermitage might he go to? And then one night in June 11th, 2011, he disappears from his own monastery. He sneaks out of his own monastery in Borgaya. And he leaves behind a note saying, that he's always wanted to do this. He's going to live on the streets and in the forest and sleep in caves and live like a sadhu, like a Hindu wandering mendicant and beg for his food. And this was completely shocking. And part of it is that he was 35, 36 years old at the time, but he was a hothouse Dharma prince. He wasn't like a street kid. He... It's not that he grew up with, with any kind of middle-class comforts in terms of, of materialism, but he was very well taken care of. He was a tulku, a reincarnated uh, lama. He was the youngest son of an esteemed meditation master, Tuklu Organ. He was the abbot of three monasteries. He was a major lineage holder. He had been very well protected. And he had never been outside by himself. He had never he had never ordered a cup of tea for himself. He had never carried money. He had never bought a train ticket. So the the idea that he had just walked out of his own monastery was just astonishing. And when he came out of retreat four and a half years later, as it turned out, he then talked about this near death experience that he had had, which was very transformative and was meant a lot to him, and he wanted to share that experience with other people. And so when I went to visit him in Nepal shortly after he came out of his retreat, he asked me if I would help him with a, with a new book uh, on the Bardos. On the, uh, I guess I have to yeah, explain that. Yeah, that so that's Bardos right. referred to a set of teachings in Tibetan Buddhism about death and dying. Basically, that's what it means. When we use the word kind of colloquially, it kind of means in between, in between, in between one stage of life and another stage of life. And as uh, in the because of course, in the Tibetan tradition, as in many Buddhist traditions, there's more life after life. Yes. So this, so this is a kind of um, stages of one's physical life. You're born and you enter the the bardo. You're in the bardo of this life, and you uh, have an uh, irreversible illness, and you enter the bardo of dying, and then uh, the longest bardo, the 
according to the text that you're in, is the bardo in between this form of this life and taking a new form. So it can be used as in between in that way. So I said, well, this, you know, sure, <laughs> I'd love to do this. And I went back to Nepal a couple of months later. And, um, but we, but I didn't know where to start, you know, where to start working on a book on Bardo. So I started asking him more and more about the beginning of his retreat. And, uh, I, I have to say that the beginning of the retreat and his whole reason for leaving was a much bigger hook for me than anything that came afterwards. Because he thought it was going to be about the near-death experience. Well, it is about them. I mean, the whole second part of the book is about the near-death experience. But a lot of people almost die. And what this book offers is an extraordinarily articulate, precise understanding of what's happening because he had been trained to, to, to know this. He had been trained in Bardo. He knew what was happening to him as the dissolution of his body is taking place. If you read other near-death experiences, there is an experiential parallel to what he describes, but without any of the articulation of what is happening in the body. So that's what makes this near-death experience quite remarkable in the near-death experience literature. Because his mind, he's, he's not only trained in the Bardos, which, by the way, for those of us who are sec, you know, secular folks, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to think of that. But he's definitely got a sharp, focused mind and can see more as what happens to the mind and the body as it's coming close to death than your average untrained mind does, who then comes back and reports to us stuff about a white light. Well, there is a there is a, in Tibetan studies, uh, there is a particular emphasis put on the dying process because the separation of the mind and the body which is what the descriptions of the in the near death experience literature refer to there is what tibetans would call the separation i don't know what other people call it they just talk about floating above their bodies but it's the same experience but the tibetans have known about this as have many traditions and there's a great deal of emphasis put on that experience which will happen to everyone. It's part of the dying experience. So none, all of us will go through that. But only those who can recognize what's happening can benefit from it. So, there, so Rinpoche is very clear about wanting to know what is happening, and he knows what that possibility is about. But as I said earlier, a lot of people almost die. Nobody we know walks out of their middle-class comfort zone and decides to live on the street. That we don't know about. And, and even though it's very much part of his tradition, especially in the early uh, founders of his tradition, people like Tilopa, uh, Naropa, Milarepa, these are all the early heroes of the Kagyu tradition that he grew up knowing about. Uh, they, they did this. They were, they, were, they were wild street yogis, or, or not street, but, but uh, uh, living uh, very unconventional lives. But very few of the more recent masters uh, uh, do this. Rinpoche had one teacher, Nishulkan Rinpoche, who spent some time on the street. But unlike Minjin Rinpoche, he had grown up in tremendous poverty. And if he had to go hungry for a couple of days on the street, that was not his first experience of hunger. For Minjin Rinpoche, it would have been. So what about the story, um, Aside from the broad strokes of it, what, what caught your imagination? How did it go for him? 
Well, this is what happened. I mean, when he first leaves, it doesn't go so well. He, he, you know, he, uh, he, he ends up, his, his first plan is to get attacked. He takes some money from the monastery with him because uh, uh, people leave offerings of money every day in his room when they come to visit him. And so he had been siphoning off a little bit before his attendant came to take it. So he had a little bit of cash with him. It comes to, we calculated about 150 American dollars. And uh, so he buy, he had bought himself, figured out how to buy himself a, a, a train ticket from the Gaia station, which was about eight miles from his monastery. So his first plan was to get to that station, take the midnight train to Varanasi. And he had no plan from there which is another, you know, for me, that's amazing that one would set off and have no plan past the first night. But he gets onto this station platform. He had always been there with attendants. So he would sit in the nice air-conditioned room, and his attendant would go buy the tickets and figure out how to get the porter and carry the luggage and get him into the AC car and so forth. And he has to sort of figure out. And he doesn't even know how to read the, 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 the currency, the denomination on the notes. What? He doesn't. He doesn't handle money. Oh right, I guess that's right. So yeah. and he he's had, been a he's been a monk since he was a little boy. Since he was a little boy, so he's standing there and he's figuring all this stuff out. You know, and had you know what queue to get on for the uh, the train to Varanasi, and he's buying the cheapest ticket, which meant that he's going to get squished into this car with a gazillion other people, and. Um, it's not comfortable for him at all. He doesn't freak out like many of us might have and just to say, you know, I think this is a really bad idea. I'm going to take a taxi back to the monastery and sneak back in right now. He doesn't do that. But he's not comfortable on this platform station, you know, waiting for the train. And uh, he's trying to deal with that and to figure out what's going on here and talk himself down, you know, that this is impermanent, this will change, I have to let this go, this agitation will go. Uh, if, I, if I let it pass, it will go. And, um, and then he gets onto the train and, and he spends a fairly miserable night, uh, on and off. I mean, there are times when, he's, when, he, when he reveals to us what his practice is, how he's trying to practice, uh, what his, but he's also disgusted by the smell of the overflowing toilets, and he's babies are crying and people are falling over him because after a few ri- first he doesn't have a seat, and then after a few stops he gets a seat on the floor, and so people are tripping over him. Well, he's a tulku. He's never sat on the floor. He was never allowed to sit on the floor. Tulkus do not sit on the floor. So all of this is completely new. There's just a completely radical upside down moment uh, that, that, that happens so fast. And the biggest change that he talks about in the book is uh, not, uh, being alone, not having an attendant, not, not having any protection whatsoever. Um, so I think that, you know, in love with the world is really very radical in terms That's of exposing. Of That's the title of the book. It's, it's very radical in terms of exposing uh, a mind that's stressed out. Of, of, of an enlightened teacher who then is trying to work with it. And the enlightenment comes in and how he tries to work with it, how he's working with it. And he talks about losing his, his uh, awareness for moments at a time, but not too long. So it's a combination of constantly relying and it being tremendously confident of the awareness that he knows he has. He's very, he has a lot of confidence in his practice 
and in the teachings. But he, it, his awareness gets broken a couple of times. And he's, he has some really difficult moments. But what, what, can you talk about what the most difficult moments were? I think the first difficult moment would have been on the platform in the Gaia station. That was, you know, he had, he had only been out of his monastery for less than an hour at that point. But I think the crowds were difficult for him. Getting pushed around was difficult. Um, uh, and I think being on the train, uh, there was one, one, one description of a very loud noise that kind of, uh, kind of, agitates him a lot. And again, he walks you through what's happening in a way that's very, very unusual and it's kind of amazing where he is very articulate about being frightened. Uh, he imagines, he wakes up to this noise, this this huge noise. And before he even knows what the noise is, you know, he's in the middle of a terrorist attack or uh, or something horrible that is happening. And he can hear his mind, he can hear the the, what his mind is doing to him faster than he can hear the sound of the train. It turns out it's the sound of the train. It's the train whistle. But he walks you through all of that in a way that really illuminates how the mind works and then how he's working with his mind and how even though, even though it's, it's not the perfected, uh, enshrined enlightenment that we might think of, it's very much uh, a mind that is extremely advanced and knows what it's doing in a way that's incredibly inspiring and encouraging for the rest of us. So it sounds like he acquitted himself well and that he put himself in a test, a real test for his practice. Extraordinary test. Extraordinary. Yeah, he had some rough moments and he, as you put it, acquitted himself well. That's a, yeah, I would say that's kind of an understatement. I mean, most of us would have been under the covers (laughs) or back home or, yeah. And he kept going, and he he kept telling himself that, you know, everything will change, everything will be okay, change. You know, that's very much a part of the theme of the book because it goes change and permanence, transience, and finally death and dying. It becomes a meditation on all aspects of change, and physical body, mental body, and so forth. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers 
and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. What did you learn and what will we as readers, by extension, learn about how to work with your own mind in in working with Minja Rinpoche to tell this story? One of the things he does in this book, and it's it's not unique to him, uh, but he describes the bardos not as a linear process that takes place in this lifetime and then dying and then your next life. He describes the bardos as states of mind that we go through continuously. So all day long, we're dying, we're changing, we're being reborn. All day. And I think there's something about how he talks about it. Again, it's not radical. It's not brand new for a Tibetan teacher to talk this way. It's a little different than some of the more conventional versions. But this sense of continuity, of being born and dying and being born and becoming and becoming and becoming, he has a way of talking about it that you can bring into your daily life continuously. So you can constantly, uh, you know, I got on a subway to come here. What was the beginning of my journey? Was it when I got on the train, when I left my house, when I went down the steps, when I bought my ticket, when I got off? What was the beginning? What was the ending? To take the most daily life situations and to ask, where does it start? Where does it end? And to, to, to kind of slowly absorb it as continuity change and continuity, transformation. And I think Rinpoche's point in this book is um, how much this can reduce our fear of what we call dying, so that dying doesn't remain this monolithic thing that happens at the end of our lives, that we can work with it continuously right now in, in, our, in every aspect of our daily lives. He talks about breathing in and breathing out as beginning and ending and being born and dying every 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 breath is a death. Every breath is a rebirth. So you can do it. You can keep working with it continuously. And I found that to be very powerful. I'm not sure. I'm 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 still struggling a little bit to understand that. So every breath is a 
being born and dying because it begins and ends? It begins and ends. And uh, everything's beginning and ending and becoming and changing. And we tend to, I think part of part of what he talks about in the book is that we we often feel that we're stuck in our lives. I mean, this is, you know, he's seen thousands of students, and this is a constant theme is that they somehow feel discontent, but they don't know quite what to do with it, and they don't quite know how to handle it, and they, they have a sense of this is who I am. And it's not really, there's nothing in their actual lives that is chaining them to one perspective of themselves or one view of themselves or one activity of themselves, but they they have a fixed idea of who they are. And that fixity is what keeps them going in what we call samsara, keeps them going in circles. And so the working with the sense of continuity and change in all situations is something that really allows the fixed mind to loosen up a little bit, loosen it up so that you're not, you're not starting here and ending there as we do all day long. Now, of course, some of this is just simply pragmatic. You know, if I say I'm going to meet you at 4 o'clock, <laughs> you know, I'm going to look at my watch and meet you at 4 o'clock. But a lot of it <clears throat> has to do with the way we fix ourselves and hold ourselves in very constricted, uh, very limited ways. And so having a sense of continuity and change in every part of our lives, whether it's in how we breathe or breathing or going anywhere, can be extremely inspiring uh, to what the possibilities are. Does he talk about, you know, when the rubber hits the road, how would we practice this in our daily lives? What's the practice? Is it just noticing all the time how things change? I think one of the things that Minjur Rinpoche is, uh, I think, quite good at, both in this book and in general in his teachings, is bringing the practice down to some very pragmatic daily life situations so that something like change and impermanence is not held out in some iconic form, like, uh, like uh, let's say, I'm going to go on vacation and that's going to be a change, or I'm going to graduate from this program and that will be a change. I'm going to go to a new, we have all these, I go to a new job. We have all these very big markers. Somebody in our life dies, these huge markers. And instead to, to take these markers and bring them down into the nitty gritty of our lives. Um, I'll give you a silly example. You want one? Right. One, one of the first times I ever kind of, uh, uh, realized this for myself. I was in the middle of working on the book and I, I read a novel. It was a novel that I liked a lot. And like a lot of the times when I read novels, I didn't want it to end. I had just spent a week with this character and this character became my best friend and I had returned to this character and the novel ended and I wanted to hold on to this character. And very often I go back and I start reading the book again from the beginning, at least for a while, maybe the first couple of chapters before I'm ready to say goodbye. And I had never before thought about it as a kind of a grieving. I, I, I never used that word. I had never applied that word to that process. And it suddenly occurred to me that this is a kind of a grieving. It's a kind of letting go. It's a kind of allowing myself to be open to the next experience, the next book, the next character, whatever it was. And so it's a shift in perspective. I had never seen it. It was the same feeling. The feeling didn't change. How I thought about it changed. And so I, I, to add that to a sense of, 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 of letting go, of moving on, of, of after letting, you know, 
the letting go of one breath allows for a new breath. It allows for a new possibility. It allows for a new experience. It allows for greater curiosity, greater acceptance of what's in front of you. So you're not taking that fixed mind and uh, working your normal or your, your habitual program. Do you, do you think that actually working with these practices has made you more comfortable with the idea of death for yourself? You know, I'm very aware of the fact that if I was given a, a, a life-threatening diagnosis tomorrow, I would not know how I would respond. I cannot tell you that I would respond with greater or lesser equanimity than I might have two years ago. I, I really don't know. But what I do know is that I don't think so much about how will I die physically. I'm much more interested in this process of continuous dying, grieving, reborn, letting go. It's much more interesting to me. And will it help me at some point? I don't know. I hope so, but I don't really know. The, uh, in terms of dying before you die, um, there appear, and you just correct me if I'm wrong on this, I hope, there appear to be a couple ways to look at this. There's this moment-by-moment moment thing where you can watch the beginnings and endings of everything. And then there's also, um, you know, uh, uh, Minja Rinpoche had to die, uh, had to let go of his status in the world and, uh, and, and let go of many other things in order to go out and do this, uh, this, this retreat. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm not sure I understand your question. Before we started rolling, you were talking about di dying before you die. Um, th that part of it is to let go of our status in the world, to let go of our middle class life, let go of our whatever titles we may have accrued. It's, it's let go of our attachments, whatever your attachment is. If your attachment is to being poor, you got to let go of that. It's, it's not so. It's not just middle class versus some other class. It's whatever you're attached to. What the attachment is is uh, the attachment expresses the ego. That's where the ego gets caught. And that's the small self, the, smell, the self that's identifying with these outside uh, titles, outside descriptions, outside uh, associations. That's what has to let go in order for another kind of birth to take place. We see this in all kinds of cultures. We see this in tribal cultures uh, where young men, not women for the most part, but young men go through a kind of transformation from a secular to a spiritual maturity. You see this uh, worldwide, this sense of letting go of the small, uh, in, in, in the terms that we use, it would be ego-driven, uh, small self, uh, in order to reveal and allow to flourish a different level of being. And, and that's just as, that, that theme is very strong in Christianity as well as Buddhism, but it, maybe not as articulated these days as it, as it once was. Would this kind of letting go make us less um, effective in the professional sphere if I'm just <laughs> constantly letting go of my title as anchor man of this and that? You know, am I going to, you know, give – I remember I was talking to our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Mark Epstein, who's been on the show a bunch of times. And I was talking about maybe letting go of something in my professional uh, sphere. And he said, and not in the pejorative – that he was concerned that I was, quote unquote, giving away my power, not meaning like uh, not meaning it in the sense of I'm power hungry and, and um, I, I should actually look at a healthy way of getting uh, of letting go of that. He meant more like, you know, you have this influence in the world. 
Do you want to just let that go in a way that might be unwise? And actually, that very concern he had is, I guess, what I'm trying to voice here. Could we could we let go in a way that may be irresponsible? In the second part of Benjamin Pache's book, In Love with the World, he has an encounter. He's sitting, by this time, he's in Kushinagar. He's sitting in a park. He's still transitioning from his, he's still wearing his robes. He still has enough money to stay in a guest house, but he's, more and more spending more time outside and sitting in a, in, a, in a park area. And he has an encounter with an Asian man. And uh, the man notices that he's meditating, and he comes and he asks for his advice. I see that you're meditating. Can I ask for your advice? I'm visiting. I came here to look for peace of mind uh, and learn how to meditate, and I'm having a terrible time. I don't know what to do. And, and they begin to have this uh, conversation, and they, they talk several times. And one of his concerns is that he is a businessman, and he's and he's learning he's he's been learning Buddhist practice, but he has a he he admits that some part of his Buddhist practice has been used. He hopes that it will make him an even better businessman, mm. and he does not want to. He fears uh, um, letting that letting go will be bad for his business. He's never known a life without ambition, without goals, and. Rinpoche says to him, letting go does not mean giving up. So I think in that there's something about what you're asking, that letting go has to do with letting go of the attachment and of the, the attachment, to seeing the attachment itself as what causes the problems, not what your activity is. So it's not like letting, I mean, you could let go of being whatever you, I'm not sure what you call yourself. Yeah, you can you can let go of, of being, uh, you know, Mr. 10% happier, and you could get very attached to being Mr. 2% happier, Mr. 100% happier, whatever it is. It's the attachment that, that, that creates fixity around who we think we are. It's the attachment that reduces and constricts and limits our capacity for exploring new possibilities. Yeah, but I've always had trouble with this. Uh, I wouldn't know how to be effective in the world if I didn't have some level of attachment to it. So I dreamt up this idea of 10% happier and then pursued it even though everybody told me it was stupid. And now uh, people make fun of me for being Mr. 10% happier because it worked on some level, right? So I do have some attachment to it. And that attachment, I think, helped me persevere in the face of uh, headwinds, let's say. So how could I have done what I kind of stumbled into doing without having some level of attachment. Well, when you when you were stumbling into it, you weren't yet attached, right? The attachment somehow came later on. I see. And you're, you're stumbling. You're, you, when you describe stumbling in, that's not an attached. <laughs> that doesn't sound very attached. <laughs> Generally, when we're stumbling, you know, we're making our way and we're being motivated by whatever it is, curiosity, maybe ambition, Maybe possibility, maybe uh, wanting new horizons and wanting new challenges. Stumbling doesn't sound like attachment. Attachment is that sticky stuff that gets in our way. It, it's, it's not about the activity. It's not about what's at the other end of the attachment. It's the attachment itself. It's the quality of, of, of reaching out and yearning and, and manipulating and trying to, 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 to angle to meet your needs based on that fixed idea of what you think you want or are. It's, it's where it gets restrictive and constrained. 
So your view is that this attachment is an a, an overlay on top of motivations that actually are are could lead you to be more effective. And if you can get rid of the attachment, actually, you could do more good in the world or have more success. She's shrugging. Just so I know. don't know. I, I mean, I think he, I think you know. For a lot of us, we talk about attachment because we 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 recognize it as the entrapment. Now, if if you don't recognize it that way, there's no problem. Yeah. No, I mean, I I think I this is one of these things that I've kind of puzzled over for a long time because I think the the, the theme of one of the big themes of the first book I wrote was how can you be ambitious, not in the pejorative, you know, how can you be a person who thinks big and tries to go for it without making yourself miserable? And so attachment seems to be a big part of the, how you make yourself miserable, but I've never quite sussed out how to turn down the volume on that attachment without. Well, do you experience yourself as being very attached to your role or to your, or to your profile? At my worst. At your worst? Yes. Maybe that's not so bad. (laughs) At my worst. Yes. At my best, it's not on my mind. Right. And so there's probably the answer. Yes. At my best, I'm just focused on what I'm doing and I'm I'm not so wrapped up in how's this going to make me look as Mr. 10% happier or whatever. I'm just like talking to you or playing with my kid or playing with ideas for how to create good, great content or mentoring my employees or whatever. So I'm not thinking about that. Okay. So you just answered my question. It took me a long time to get there. Sorry, <laughs> but you, you were very patient with me and I appreciate that. Um, uh, what is the, what is meant by the title in love with the world? Following Minjuri Pichay's near death experience. This is at the very end of in love with the world, the book. He recognizes there's something in that experience that happens in the near-death experience in which he experienced the, the entire world as love. And he's very articulate about it. And this is the complete absence of the ego self, of the conceptual self. And he charts his, the dissolution uh, of the elements of the of the up up until he can, and then at some point the conceptual mind dissolves. So he's giving us a play by play description up to a certain point, and then he, uh, but he still has the capacity to have some memory of what happened. He spends about five six hours in this very 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 deep meditation state, and even when he. Oh, I'm not going to tell you the very end of the book because there's a very wonderful surprise ending. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you. I have to buy this book. <laughs> but he does experience the world uh, as an enormously loving space, a space that he loves, the space that loves him, the space of total, complete acceptance, and in a, ver- in a way that's very radical for him that he had never known such a degree of comfort in the world, a complete absence of self-consciousness, embarrassment. These are the things that bedeviled him on the train station uh, in Gaia at the beginning in the station in Varanasi. He was intensely embarrassed and self-conscious and 
that just disappears. He feels completely accepted by this loving, loving world. Have you ever had a glimpse of that yourself? Glimpse. Little glimpses. What do you think that is, that when you strip away all of our attachments and striving and yearning and fear and confusion, that what remains is somehow love? I think in our, in our own lives and in our own world that most of us inhabit, we give so much dominance to the thinking mind, the intellectual mind. And it often leaves us perhaps not as much in touch with our hearts as we um, could be, might be. And I think when a lot of that when a lot of that intellectual, conceptual mind drains out, we're left with something that we always have, but it's so covered and so obscured and, and so often remains so hidden. So when you say, have you ever had a glimpse of that? In some ways, you know, if you remember when, <laughs> those first moments when you fall in love, those moments... Uh, you know, where just the whole world is wide open. Everything, everybody looks beautiful. Everybody <laughs> looks wonderful. Everybody is so happy to see you. You're so happy to see everybody. But that's a very open heart. That heart didn't go anywhere. It doesn't leave us. It doesn't fly away. It doesn't have its own little paradise that it goes home to. It's there all the time. But are you so? So are you saying our fundamental fundamental nature is loving? Because you could also argue that our fundamental nature is pretty awful and violent. If one looks, takes a passing uh, glance at human history, for example. I think I have a lot of faith in the Buddhist view of an essentially uh, loving uh, space, loving being. Um, why am I saying that? We know through our own meditation practice that the intellectual mind that we're so used to and so dependent upon and so familiar with, we know how fragile that is. We know that that's not our true mind. And when, we, when I look at the world today, what I see more than anything else is not violence. I could look at it that way easily. But what I see is just tremendous ignorance. And I see an ignorance that is being perpetuated through mental constructs, not the heart, through ideas, through very ignorant ideas. So I have a lot of faith in that possibility that uh, we can learn to be, uh, allow for a more loving consciousness. I mean, one could marshal evidence to support this thesis. For example, um, you have to train people very hard to become killers in the military. We used to drug them in, or you know, give them booze in order to do this. And now we have to kind of, you know, you really have to train people if, uh, for quite a while in order to get them to do something which is essentially against our nature. It, it doesn't feel good to hurt other people. Um, so that would be one data point. Another data point from my own experience, and I may have, talked about this in uh, previous podcasts, so I apologize, everybody, if I'm being repetitive. But I remember my the first time I had a real sort of, I don't know, a, me a meditative experience on, on, on a meditation retreat where the volume of my inner chatter went way down. 
uh, I made a big deal out of it, um, probably like nothing, but um, I remember feeling extraordinarily happy, but not in an excited way, but happy in a sort of profound way of well-being, contentment. And I remember if I had to sum it up in words, which is a very difficult thing to do, that it was a feeling like of everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Not everything's okay right now, but like everything's okay, <laughs> period, yeah. full stop. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's so, and, and every time I've gone back on meditation retreat and I, you know, I'm back in that terrain for a fleeting second and then, uh, then I get t- attached to it and ruin everything. Um, it is the same sort of feeling that you, all you're left with is a much warmer state of mind than I'm normally in when I'm, you know, trying to catch a cab. She's nodding and agreeing with me. <laughs> I just, before we close here, I just want to, we've talked a lot about his near-death experience, but we didn't actually fill in the details of like what happened to him that he was having a near-death experience. Oh, he, he uh, went out to beg for food. By this time, he's out of money and he's begging for food. And he eats something that's very poisonous. And he begins um, vomiting. He has extreme diarrhea. He's getting very dehydrated, probably more so than he realizes. So he's continuing to drink water, but not enough. And he's, um, so after about, I think after, after the second night, he can no longer stand up to go back to the restaurant to even beg for food. So then he stops eating completely. And, um, and I think it's the dehydration, uh, probably. Uh, yeah. And I can't tell you the exact ending. <laughs> that has to remain a mystery. <laughs> he obviously doesn't die, so that's not so mysterious. <laughs> I have to go back and listen, but I think he might have given away the ending on the no. Yes, I think he might have. Um, but I, I, I won't give it away here. Okay, good. Um, such a pleasure to sit and talk to you. Oh, really appreciate you. that. Yeah, it's fun. So before we go, um, I always um, ask people to to enter what we call the plug zone. Can you so can you just plug away, plug the book, plug oh, Tricycle? I'd love to. I'd tell, love t- to. tell us where we can find all of this, all of anything related to you. Well, Tricycle, you can go online and you can buy a, a subscription to the print uh, version or you can buy a, a digital version or you can sign up for both and you get a lot of extra things. <laughs> you get daily Dharma, wonderful uh, reminders every morning about how to practice and how to work with your mind and, Encouraging, inspiring daily uh, reminders. And for the book, it's In Love with the World, uh, My Journey Through the Bardos of Living and Dying by Minja Rinpoche and me. And it's coming out from Spiegel and Grau on May 7th. And you can pre-order from Amazon or from Random House and um, buy this book. Which one was your editor, Spiegel or Grau? Spiegel, Cindy Spiegel. Okay, so Julie Grau, her partner... Is your, is my was editor. Was your yes, editor, yes. right. Is still my editor. Yeah. I've got two more books I owe her. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, she's a wonderful person. Um, uh, so thank you. So are you. So thank you very much for coming in. Really <laughs> appreciate you. that. Thanks, Dan. Thanks again to Helen Tworkov. I should say that if you're interested in hearing more about Mingyur Rinpoche's story, he was actually on this podcast, episode 27. And this was actually sh- – this was a while ago because we're in episode 180-something now, so – this was he was one of my first guests three almost three years ago, and he was fresh off of his wandering retreat at this point. So uh, he talks uh, he talks about his the his experiences from his perspective, and unfortunately, 
it's only in the last 15 minutes of that podcast that we get to it because I didn't know that much about what had happened at the time. So we talk about many, many fascinating things, including the fact that uh, he suffered from panic attacks much of his life. And so what's that like? But in the last 15 minutes, he really talks about why he went off on this retreat, what it was like to have a near-death experience. So go check that out. I think it'll be a great compliment to what you've just heard uh, from Helen. Time for the voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan. This is Eileen from Boone, North Carolina. Thank you for all you do. Your podcast is one of my absolute favorites. And I wanted to ask you about loving-kindness meditation. It's one of the forms that I practice. I know there are a few different things people say or think when they do it. The one that I do sends wishes out for may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you live with ease. And my question for you is, some of the people that I choose to focus on in this meditation, besides myself, are people who are struggling with health and happiness. And so my mind starts to argue with me (laughs) as I'm sending these wishes out, saying, yeah, that's a nice idea, but that's not what their life is like. So what I have chosen to do is... When my mind starts to disagree with me, I just note that and let it go and return to the wishes that I am sending out to those people. But my question for you is, have you ever experienced this? And do you have any advice to do something different than what I'm already doing? So again, thank you very much. Have a great day. I have experienced that. Uh, My first response is what you're doing sounds pretty good to my semi-educated ears. The second thing I'd say is I don't know how much arguing arguing is really needed if you just approach this from a purely logical perspective. For example, so I practice metta, M-E-T-T-A, or loving-kindness meditation a lot. And one of the people, one of my targets is my dad who's uh, has, has some health problems. And uh, I – Picture him when I say when I'm sending the phrase of may you be happy, I actually picture him playing with his grandson, my son, and recently and he was really happy. So that's not that hard. But when I send him wishes for his health, I just kind of picture him as he is now and and hope that he can be as healthy as he possibly can be given the current circumstances. So he used to run marathons. I'm not imagining in my mind that he's that he'd be that healthy again. But I'm I'm hoping that he can be as healthy and happy and safe as is possible given his current circumstances. So I, I hope that makes sense. Um, I don't think it's about having unrealistic fantasies. It's just, hey, can you be the best you can be right now given what's happening? So that's my approach. I hope that helps. Uh, here's voicemail number two. Hey, Dan, love the podcast. Um, I have a question. Um, So there are uh, several individuals who claim uh, sort of enlightenment, uh, namely um, Eckhart Tolle, Adishante, uh, Gary Weber, and others who claim to not have thoughts, um, uh, sort of uh, their their default mode network is like permanently offline. Um, and I, was, I submitted this as a question to the Sam Harris AMA page, to which he has not resp- 
bonded in his AMA podcasts, and I'm just curious as to whether this is, is something that is uh, true or if there is some other more rational explanation. Uh, I can understand that they're not lost in thought, but to simply claim that you have no sort of uh, thoughts concerning your historical past or uh, your future it seems to me unlikely and would make life impossible for that person. So I don't know if that question made any sense or if I phrased it right, but that was the best I could do. Thank you, and uh, keep keep up the great work. So I I, I agreed to uh, answer this question, not because I have the perfect answer, just because I think it's incredibly interesting. Before I uh, say whatever I'm going to say, uh, let me just for – for the uninitiated, explain who some of those people are that you named. Uh, so you talked about Gary Weber, who I've never met, but um, I've heard some podcasts with him. Is uh, if, I, if memory serves, a former businessman who um, was practicing doing contemplative practices for a long time and claims to have had a, a pretty significant enlightenment experience. Adyashanti, I don't know much about at all. But I, I believe is a pretty prominent teacher. And Eckhart Tolle, who I have met and have interviewed and have written about extensively, uh, is a huge best-selling spiritual teacher and author who says he had a spiritual awakening after which he lived on park benches in in a state of bliss in the city of London for two years. And um, yeah, and you say you submitted this, your question about this to Sam Harris, to his AMA, Ask Me Anything podcasts that he does. I know he's got one coming up, so maybe he'll take it during that. Um, Sam is also a longtime meditator and has a podcast called Making Sense. It used to be called Waking Up, uh, which was named after a, a great book he wrote called Waking Up, but now the podcast is called Making Sense. He also has a meditation app called Waking Up. Um, and Sam is a, a friend of mine and has been a real sort of like mentor as I've gotten deeper in, into meditation and in fact, he knowing him, I met him about ten years ago. Maybe I actually met him a little bit longer than oh, longer than that. But anyway, meeting somebody as skeptical as him, he's one of the sort of first authors to come out and write these forceful books about atheism. Meeting somebody as skeptical as him, who's a neuroscientist and an atheist and a philosopher and a writer, but also was deeply into meditation, that really helped me get interested in meditation in the first place. And I remember as I was writing 10% Happier, at one point I called Sam Harris and asked him, because Eckhart Tolle was in some ways this, um, the sine qua non of my whole quote-unquote spiritual journey, because I read Eckhart Tolle's book and he was the first person I ever heard describe the fact that we all have a voice in our heads, the sort of inner narrator that is – um, yammering away at us all the time and has us sort of casting into the future, or ruminating about the past all the time and never quite where we are, never in the quote-unquote the present moment. And I remember asking Sam once about Eckhart's claim that he had this spiritual experience and that he was enlightened. And I, I think there's, a, there's some quote I read from Eckhart Tolle that he sort of – he said that if he ever met the Buddha – and the Buddha told him he wasn't enlightened, he would think, oh, wow, even the Buddha can be wrong. So I, I remember thinking, that's a pretty big claim to be making about yourself. 
And I, I asked Sam about it once, and and Sam's answer, if memory serves, was that you know maybe that's it. It could be um, they, having enlightenment experiences of this level to Sam's mind. Again, this is a guy who's who had spent years and years and years in India and other places on retreat, and also has a scientific background. To him, it seemed possible that you could have these pr- profound levels. Of you could reach one could reach these profound levels of enlightenment and look there's there's actually some scientific evidence to back up that that the people who've done decades and decades and decades of practice that their brains are different you know there's all this research spearheaded by um, Dr. Richie Davidson um, at uh, at the University of Wisconsin where you take these highly these advanced these sort of Olympic meditators and and look at their brains and their brains are really different. And by the way, one of the people whose brains has has been scanned is Mingyur Rinpoche and he's close with Richie Davidson. In fact, that's how I got to know Mingyur Rinpoche. And so obviously there's a causation correlation question here about these folks with these (laughs) really interesting brains. Like maybe they're advanced meditators because their brains were like that. Or maybe they uh, maybe their brains are like that because they did all that work on their on you know on the cushion. Um, so it's not dispositive this this evidence, but it's certainly compelling. And it's been really interesting for me over time as somebody who thought the idea of enlightenment was ridiculous to meet all of these really smart Western secular science based folks who talk about how yeah no I I think it's possible they say that you can affect profound changes on the level of the brain and the mind so that life is very different that we're not that you're not so afflicted by difficult emotions like greed and hatred and confusion so does that mean you no longer think well you know i'm not sure that's my understanding of what gary weber and eckhart tolle are claiming that they don't have thoughts. My understanding, and this is where I'm getting on thin ice, so I don't want to claim that I know too much, but my understanding about what Gary Weber, people like Gary Weber and Eckhart Tolle are claiming is that they do have thoughts, but they have no illusions about whether there is a thinker. In other words, they've seen through the illusion of the self, that, that of course thoughts arise, Yes, I need to. I should eat right now. My belly is rumbling, or I, I, it's time to brush my teeth. Or you can think, I'm Gary Weber. I need to make a dentist appointment using that name. But you have no illusion that there is some core Gary in there, or some core Eckhart in there, who's thinking these thoughts. That 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 there is. Um, they really in touch with the mystery of consciousness. That at some level, if you look in a, in a sustained enough way at the mind, you will see that it is empty, that there is no – not empty in the conventional Western sense, but that it is empty of self, that it is – that there's no one home, really. And that is the mystery. So if there's no one home, how can we be having these thoughts? And this is one of the things that uh, many of us in the meditation scene really wrestle with. I don't have firm answers about this. This is one of these questions that I think I we should – in fact, I, I will now resolve to do so. I think this would be a great question for um, when we get uh, teachers on the show to run some of 
questions from you all by them. In fact, we recently taped an episode that we're going to post soon where I had a very senior teacher on the show, and we let her listen to some of the voicemails, and she takes a crack at some of the answers. So this would be a good one to reuse. So I hope I've I've uh, shed a little bit of light from my unenlightened mind on on this question, and I hope Sam weighs in too on his excellent podcast, which I am a regu- uh, of which I am a regular listener. Thanks for that question. Uh, thanks too for to everybody who works on this now Webby award winning podcast. Gives me so much pride to say that Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Ryan Kessler, Susie Liu is working the boards today. Um, as I record this um, intro on a Saturday morning. Uh, thank you also to all of uh, uh, the folks who agreed to give us feedback on a regular basis. That's enormously helpful. And thanks to everybody who just listens to the show. Really appreciate it. I know I say this every week. Every podcast host says this, but there's a reason why we say it. If you have the time or energy to give us a review or rate us or talk about us on social media, that really helps with our rankings and helps more people find us and make sure that we and continue to do this work. All right, I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.